If you go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 and James chapter 3. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for preserving your word for us. We thank you, Father, for giving to us the truth that we may understand who you are and who we are and what you've done for us. So, Father, as we continue our worship of you this morning, Father, as we have bowed together in prayer and we pray together and confess our sins, our desire, Father, is to approach you humbly, acknowledging what we are and who we are and what you've done for us. As we sing, Father, praises to your name, as we really rehearse for ourselves the truth of your word, Father, we ask that our hearts would be encouraged. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be encouraged as we gather together in the name of Christ to worship you, to seek to be encouraged by each other and by prayer and by singing, to continue to strive to live the life you've called us to live. Father, as we have gathered tithes and offerings, that, Father, we may continue to support the work of this body as we desire, Father, to continue to reach out to others to meet their needs, spiritual and physical, here and also around the world. And so, Father, we've now once again committed ourselves to a time where our focus is on your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would give us understanding you would give to us a strong desire that our minds, that the way that we think, that what we think about, the way that we live, the way that we make decisions would be shaped by your word. The Father, we would receive wisdom that we may live by the knowledge of your word, to honor you, to bring glory to your name, also knowing, Lord, that this is the path to happiness and joy for us. We thank you. And so, as always, Father, we ask that you bless our time in your word today. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And then Romans 12, verses 9 and 10, it says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I begin by reading these passages this morning. Uh, as a, a way of introduction as we continue dealing with some current issues. And the reason why I read these uh, today is because in the climate that we live in, 
there, is, there has been a growing movement among believers as well as in society that are very concerned about social issues. Again, abortion, gender issues, maybe called social justice. We have talked before when we have dealt with some of the issues surrounding COVID and the COVID restrictions and all the things associated with that, that there are issues that not only that we disagree on, which would be okay, but actually end up dividing us. What ends up taking place is we have very strong opinions about certain things, which is not wrong, but we tend to become less patient with those who disagree with us, less patient with those who may not see things the way that we see them, or maybe from our point of view, less patient with those who don't see what we believe is clearly the truth or as to what's going on. And as this takes place within Christianity, I believe that the waters have been kind of muddied as to really what is our purpose, what we are to do as Christians, both individually and collectively. That these issues that we're talking about, they are important. The church is to take stands on many of these things. The world probably doesn't like the stands we take, but nonetheless, we take these stands. But in our interactions with others, whether they're believers or non-believers, when it comes to what we are to do, we can easily lose our focus. We can easily begin to allow our priorities to become confused. And we want to make sure that we keep certain things clear in our minds, in our heads when it comes to this. So I want to begin by asking some questions because when it comes to some of these convictions that people have, I think some of those convictions are um, injected with maybe a greater amount of intensity at times because when we express ourselves or when we take a stand against certain things that we believe are wrong or evil, sometimes the extra energy or passion that is there is because taking the stand can give to us a maybe a stronger sense of purpose or meaning, happiness, peace, contentment, whatever. And we've still, we have to be careful with that. Again, because we can lose sight of what we are to be as, as thinking Christians. So let me begin by asking this. How do you become the most miserable version of yourself? How could you become the most unlikable version of yourself? How could you become the most anxious version of yourself? Well, to become the most unhappy version of yourself, spend all your time trying to make your three best friends, me, myself, and I, happy. To become the most unlikable version of yourself, spend all your time trying to get everyone to like you. To become the most anxious version of yourself, spend all your time trying not to be anxious. And as a bonus, to become irrelevant, the church needs to spend all of its energy trying to be relevant. And by doing that, we become irrelevant. And what I'm leading to is this idea, that we need to put first things first. To put your own happiness, or whatever you want to put in that blank there, when you put your own happiness first, it means you will most likely end up chronically dissatisfied with life. Being well-liked, being happy, being anxiety-free are not first things. Those are secondary things. They are byproducts, they're not goals. If you mistake a second thing for first things, you'll lose not only the real first thing, you'll lose the second thing as well. So in what we've been discussing and will discuss for a few weeks, 
If we make abortion, race relations, social justice, conservative politics, progressive politics, gender issues, or what have you, our first thing, then we will lose not only the real first thing, which is the gospel, we will also lose, and then whatever you want to put on that list, we'll just say social justice issues as well. Along with that, many have not thought about how their thinking and feeling about ultimate issues affects their actions, or indeed how their actions affect their thinking and feeling about ultimate issues. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15, because this is very important for us to look at and to remember, though you all are very familiar with this verse. 1 Corinthians 15, because we don't have to speculate about what the scripture makes the first thing. Paul writes, as you know, a very troubled church. We went through both 1 and 2 Corinthians. Paul says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the gospel is the most important message that the church ever proclaims. And remember, you are the church. So it's not just the church as an institution. It is, it is what we proclaim. It is the most important message, period. It is good to be involved in social action. It is good to be involved in trying to better mankind. There is no reason why these ministries should preempt the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the good news of what God has done through the sin-atoning death and bodily resurrection of Jesus, the ascended king. So then, does putting the gospel first mean that ending abortion or that justice becomes optional? No, it doesn't. God doesn't suggest, God commands that we do justice, that we do righteousness, that we deliver from the hand of the oppressor he who has been robbed. In Luke chapter 4, beginning of verse 17, it reads, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Bible commands that we tell the truth, that we give generously, that we love our neighbor. None of these commands are optional. And none of these commands is the gospel. Some will say, many, many will say, and if you've been involved in discussions with individuals who are really focus on these issues, again, whether it's gender issues, social justice issues, whatever, if you, if you have a discussion with them, many of them will say that more of us who are, I guess, conservative, at least this is what I've been told about myself, that, uh, that we have created a false dilemma between the gospel and ending abortion, or that I've created a false dilemma between the gospel and ending racism, or perhaps that I have created a false dilemma between the gospel and social justice, that in reality, they are the same thing. My first thought is, really? Because I just read a verse, and it says, 
the most important or the first thing. God says what is the first thing, and he didn't mention social justice. He didn't mention gender issues or anything else. God just said that the gospel is the first thing. If justice and the gospel are the first thing, then the gospel can't be the first thing, with justice being the second thing, if they're the same thing. As you know, the gospel means good news. It is an announcement. It, it indicates that something has happened. It is an indicative statement. It is not an imperative. An imperative is something you must do. And an indicative is something that has been done. And we declare what has been done. In Galatians, when you read through that epistle, the good news has been twisted into bad news. Instead of the good news that we have been saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone, for God's glory alone, the Galatians had turned circumcision and Jewish diet into gospel issues. A gospel with additional requirements is not good news. Remember this. If salvation was 99% God's doing and 1% my doing, I would definitely find a way in my fallenness and stupidity to mess up that 1%. And I would remain unsaved. And so what happens if we make ending abortion or ending racism or justice not a mark of consistent Christian living, but a requirement of the gospel itself? Well, if the good news now entails the imperative work towards, let's say, the liberation of human trafficking victims, which is a good thing to liberate human trafficking victims, if the good news entails that imperative, that means you are saved by God's grace through Christ plus your efforts to end modern slavery. How could we ever know that we've done enough to end this vile and dehumanizing practice to be saved? There's no way to know that. There's a huge difference between fighting the injustice of human trafficking to become saved versus fighting the injustice of slavery because you are saved. This puts us back to the hopeless plight of a works-based righteousness. So we should care passionately about the dehumanization of God's image bearers, and we should work towards a just world. But making the imperative to work against such things either identical to or part of the gospel is to lose the gospel. And I would add it is to lose the main tool that God has given us to fight these things. And too many people don't believe that. They believe the main tools are going to be what we can accomplish together the passing of a new law or passing of some kind of a punitive judgment against those who violate this or violate that. <coughs> I'm not saying those things cannot be helpful, but you and I both know by thinking about it for a few moments, none of those things will change the heart of man. And even if you successfully end some of these things in the current generation, what about the next one? These things aren't unique to any one generation. This is the, the plight of mankind. This is what human beings do because of sin. For a long time in our society here in America, and in other places as well, but mostly here, our society has really championed moral relativism. The church has always tried to fight against that. But our society has embraced for a long time moral relativism. That morals kind of depends on what's going on. That, that some things now that, we, that, we, that, we, that used to be said that were not good, we now accept, and, and it's not that big of a deal. And, and so morals have been changing in a lot of areas. 
we've practiced along with that a lot of non-judgmentalism. The idea is, well, if you want to do that or if you want to be that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not your judge. And so by saying those things and living that way, we have really, maybe unwittingly, kind of pushed along the movement in our society to continue to move away from what the scripture says about morality. And as long as you didn't push your view or verbally judge someone or their actions, you were basically safe. You were okay. Nobody was going to pick on you. But today, it's very different. Today, we live in a time that is described as a rising cultural epic of activism. We are now conditioned to judge the moral shortcomings of everyone all the time. There is constant imputation of guilt to others. They are bigots. They are fascists. They are phobics, whether they're homophobic or Islamophobic or what have you. Some blame all of their guilt feelings on those of the political left or the political right or what have you. We are told that we do have infinite responsibility. We can never allow ourselves to think we have done enough because we haven't. The result is that we are infinitely guilty and there's a kind of morality or Christianity, if you will, without salvation. If you claim that you have fought abortion, if you claim that you are not racist, if you claim that you fight for justice, that you are a good guy, someone will then yell out, yeah, but didn't you just buy tomatoes from Kroger last week? And you're like, what? And this is what they might say to you. You're not doing enough. You see, when you bought those tomatoes, you're supporting, you're supporting the use of toxic pesticides. You're supporting exploitive labor laws that are used in other countries, or maybe our own. You're also contributing to global warming or something like that. You see, you're guilty. It just doesn't end. How dare you buy those tomatoes? And of course, there can be many other things that you've bought along the way. Your guilt will never end. There will always be more guilt to follow. Because today's ideology has no limiting principles. Now, when we talk like this, when I say these things, to me anyway, it does. It sounds insanely ridiculous. Watch the news. Listen to how to, to things that people are saying. This is what they're saying. Not everybody, but at least everybody they seem to be talking to is saying these things. Everything is problematic. You know, it used to be for a while, you wanted, everything needed to be organic. And so the big thing was not only to buy organic vegetables, it was to buy organic beef. I was in favor of that. I like beef. Now I'm a contributor to climate change because I like beef. Because cows, the gas they emit on both ends is contributing to global warming. And so we've got to get rid of them. And just so you know that there are certain countries that really have bought into that hook, line, and sinker. They've already passed laws to eliminate half of the animal population that they have or to get rid of the, the grasslands or the farms to eliminate these things. And that's why they're pushing so hard alternative forms of protein, which has been that there's been that big movement about eating bugs. I just heard something yesterday. This is really exciting. You'll like this. You know, because we have this big problem with, with, with waste products, especially plastic. Now, I don't know how they've done this, and I don't really want to know. But someone has figured out that they can take this plastic waste we have, somehow put it into a powder, mix it, I guess, with some magical chemicals, 
and you have a new protein powder. Not about you, but eating and ingesting plastic in whatever form it is just doesn't seem to be a great source of protein or anything. But there are those who have, have invested millions of dollars into this thing. I don't know when they're projecting it to come out. You and I probably as adults will never have to be faced with buying that. Teach your children and grandchildren about eating plastic. <laughs> Do that now. But again, all this is being done because in the end, there's no limiting principle. Everything is problematic. So we are always in a hopeless state of defeat. There is a sense of never doing enough. Never doing enough for the oppressed, never doing enough for the planet, never doing enough for the future. And so in the end, we end up having more sin than we could possibly atone for. But if you think about it, that idea is not foreign because God's law brings infinite responsibility and guilt. But there is a difference. The difference is with today's ideology, there's no redemption. There's no grace. There's no salvation. It is a game we cannot win. That is not a convoluted connection. It is spiritual and religious when you look at how people are promoting these things and pushing these things. One older commentator said that the impossibility of obeying God's law, the impossibility of keeping God's standard is a mercy because it shatters our self-righteousness. Martin Luther said that God is trying us that by his law, he may bring us to a knowledge of our impotence. Augustine said the law was given for this purpose, to make you, being great, little, to show that you do not have in yourself the strength to attain righteousness. For you, then thus helpless, unworthy and destitute, you flee to grace. And that is what we do. We flee to grace. We run to the cross. We need to quit doing penance before creatures and take our infinite guilt to the infinite creator who alone has the authority to declare us not guilty through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Romans 8.1 says, there is, now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, in the Amplified, there is now no condemnation, no adjudging guilty of wrong for those who are in Christ Jesus who live and walk not after the dictates of the flesh, but after the dictates of the spirit. In a, in a paraphrase, Romans 8.1 reads, with the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. And with all of this being said, there still will be some who claim to be Christians, and maybe they are, will still push back and say, that's a cop-out. That all of this gospel-first talk is just another way of getting out of obeying the commands of God. Another way to get out of obeying the commands of Scripture to fight injustice and to fight racism. Again, yes, we keep the commands of God. Those commands cannot save you. And keeping those commands cannot save you. Only Jesus can. But when we turn again to the Bible, we do have some very interesting things that have been that are laid out as examples for us. In the first century, in many Roman towns, only about 2% of the population of a Roman town would be comfortable financially. The majority would have been poor, very poor, maybe destitute poor. 
Two-thirds of the Roman Empire was enslaved. There was no shortage of social justice issues when Peter preached on Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, and read through verse 40, it records Peter's, Peter's sermon. Nowhere does Peter expose any social justice issues. He does not expose systemic inequalities. He doesn't rally anyone to action. If social justice is the, part, is the gospel or part of the gospel, then we must conclude that Peter either did not preach the gospel, which would make the saving of 3,000 that day a true mystery, or he preached a truncated gospel. And I believe the text makes it clear that the whole gospel was preached. In fact, something astounding would ha- took place then. Because if you look at verse 45 of Acts 2, it reads this way. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This action on behalf of the poor wasn't the gospel. It wasn't in the gospel. It was from the gospel. It was a second thing, a second thing that flowed from the first thing. And that pattern is repeated throughout all of church history. I have had, through some discussions, some of you have seen them because they take place on Facebook, between certain individuals who are adamantly in favor of a hard activism for social justice issues, etc. I'm not saying they're wrong on all their things. They are definitely on some things, but the bottom line is, is we're Christians. And we must understand what is the answer to these things. There is too much sin in your past, my past, in the past of any society to make up for. It cannot be done. God has given us the answer to create a new man in each man. Through Jesus Christ. We then become that new man. And it doesn't instantly fix everything, but everything is fixable because we're being fixed. The most important thing is not to, I believe, to not always try to make it for the past, which you can't, but to make sure those things don't happen in the future. How do you do that? You don't do it through reforming laws. That can be helpful, but that's not how you do it. It has to be the changing of the heart. And so that's why we need to make sure, no matter how passionate you may be about some of these issues, and that's not a bad thing. And you may, you may be spending money and trying hard to end these things as a Christian. That's terrific. But don't you dare lose sight of the fact that even if, through your efforts, you're able to make a huge dent with these issues, in the end, though you have accomplished good It's not what is ultimately good because those individuals who may even have changed have not become Christians and they will die in their sin and they will go to hell. And the only way that we can leave a lasting effect on the world, on your family, is by turning to Christ yourself and leading them to Christ. The source of truth, the one who is truth, the one who changes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He's the one that that causes us to love all men. No law can do that. You can create a law that says it's wrong to hate people of different color. That doesn't change a man's heart. The gospel changes the the man's heart. 
You can, you can create a law that says it's wrong to rip people off, to take advantage of maybe the old and sell them insurance that they don't need or that doesn't even exist to supplement their Medicare. And you can make that against the law, and that's a good thing, but you haven't changed the heart of the man who still wants to find another way than to do that because he needs Christ. And when it comes to all of these social justice issues, all those issues are just evidence of the curse of sin, of the madness of man himself. And the way those things are addressed, the way those things are overcome, is really through the gospel of Christ. That has never been a cop-out. That is the way. And it never ends with just, I'm so great you're now saved. I'm so, I think it's so great that now your sins are forgiven. You get to go to heaven now. Goodbye. No, it changes our hearts. And now God pours his love in our heart and we have a love and a concern for others. And we want to help them. And so some will be involved in maybe trying to stop abortion, but also then trying to help these mothers who are having children and help them out of whatever circumstances they might be in. What happens is God pours his love in our hearts and maybe we have come from a family that has been racist for a long time and our desire is to try to bring around about a reconciliation within, within society. That's a great thing. And perhaps there are some great injustices that you've seen that you want to see addressed because you're driven as a Christian because you know that all men are created in the image of God and all men aren't treated appropriately. And so we fight for those who might still be oppressed or whatever the issues may be. And that's a great thing. But we don't do so because we think we are great or because we've just suddenly been enlightened. We do so because we've been changed by the gospel of Christ. I am no longer, you know, because there are those no one wants to talk about this because it seems so judgmental. Maybe it is. But there are those who do get involved in these things for political prestige. There are those who do these things because it makes them look good and it's good for their ego. There are those who do these things because there's a financial gain that is in that. That does happen. But we should be those who are doing that because our hearts have been changed. Because we love God and we love those who have been created in, in the image of God. And so we don't need to allow and don't ever allow others to guilt you into thinking that the gospel isn't enough. Don't allow them to guilt you into thinking that somehow the gospel is not the, the real answer or that somehow that's a cop-out. Satan will try all kinds of things to diminish the gospel, to put it on the back shelf. And these social issues, which are very real and very complicated at times, they need a, a profound answer. And remember, there's nothing more complex than a human heart. And that's exactly what God addresses. That will not always be, maybe rarely be, the popular position. But stand firm and stand strong. Because even Jesus himself asked the question, when he returns, will he find such faith on earth? Not will he find an army of social justice warriors. Not will he find those who marched on Washington to change abortion laws. He's not asking will he find that. What he's asking is will he find those who are faithful. Those who are faithful in much as well as those who are faithful in little. And so whether you think your impact is big or small is of no importance. As that, I guess to me it's kind of lame, but I guess it's true. You know, that idea of bloom where you're planted. Okay, go ahead and do that. Just make sure that if you're blooming that it's with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live in light of the gospel. Let God fill your heart 
with his love. Ask God to guide and direct and lead you to do those things that are pleasing to him and do those things with your whole heart, mind, and soul. And you're not doing those things to be saved. You don't do those things to remain saved. You do those things because you are saved. And we do those things because we are looking forward to the day when Christ himself will come and he will put all things right. Because there is no human government or human movement that will ever come close to accomplishing that. That is the optimistic view because that's the realistic view. And we understand that. And so we need to make sure because there are many in churches that are giving up the most important thing. They're giving that up. They're putting it to the side. We can never do that. We must make sure that we never do that, that we are committed to these first things. And when you do that, these second things will follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your kindness and love and goodness and for the incredibly powerful message of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the gospel. It is the gospel that has saved us, undeserving wretches, from our self-condemnation because of our rebellion against you. And we stand before you with great comfort and peace because we know that we are assured of being in heaven and even ourselves being made complete in and through Christ. And for that, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that that message is not just for us. It is for everyone. We thank you, Lord, that there is an answer for the varied and complex issues that our world faces. There's an enormous amount of confusion in and outside of the church. We thank you, Father, for making it clear to us that, Father, we may have understanding that you have at least given to us what is of first importance so that we'll always have our bearings set straight. Father, may we be those of your children who declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to do that in many different ways and to always live in light of the gospel, that our life, that our speech, that our thoughts, their attitudes would lend credibility to the proof, power, and truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the immense changes you've made in our lives, for the immense changes that you've made in the lives of others. We thank you, Father, for the many changes that have taken place in our country on these issues because you have changed the hearts of so many men and women. Father, we're very much aware that there is so much work that needs to be done, that, we, that we're not even close to where we should be, Father, we know that apart from you and apart from the gospel, we will only in the end fool ourselves and end up further away from these things than closer. Father, I pray that you help all of us to be stubborn when it comes to the gospel. Help us, Father, to be immovable. Help us, Father, in one sense, to be just exasperating to the world around us because we refuse to leave from our fixed anchor and rock, which is Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to encourage each other, to pray for each other, and together to lean on you for strength and wisdom. Thank you, Father, again, for your love and patience with us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we prepare our hearts to sing our benediction this morning, let me remind you once again that regardless of the issues that you think are important, and no one is saying that they're not important, Remember that none of those things makes you a righteous person in the eyes of God. What you're doing may be good, but it is only relatively good because it can never earn you salvation, because it will never be enough. 
because you've already rebelled against the one and true and living God. And so the, so the answer is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so again, if you, if you do not know Christ, I, Tom, Steve, Steve, there's many that would be more than happy to sit down and explain the gospel, talk about the gospel, to do it on multiple occasions, to make sure that you have an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it is and what it isn't and what God would do for us. So that you too can come to faith in Christ and enjoy the peace and the comfort and the joy and the sense of hope that all of us have every day of our lives.